Thank you for joining this episode of Asp and Answered. A warning before we jump into the episode today. Around the six minute mark, our guest, Dr. Brent Walker, discusses a story of suicide. Please take this into account and make the decision best for you as you listen to the episode today. I'll now pass it over to Megan to get us started. Welcome back or welcome to another episode of Aspen Answered. Today, Eric and I are so excited to interview Dr. Brent Walker, Asp's 30th president from 2015 to 2016. Uh, Dr. Walker is currently the Major League Mental Skills Coach for the Los Angeles Dodgers. So Brent, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, let's Happy to be here. Yeah, thank you. Let's go ahead and start off with just uh, your 30-second elevator pitch bio about where you are now and what do you do? Okay, so as as you mentioned, I'm the Major League Mental Skills Coach for the Dodgers. I provide mental training or mental performance interventions for the team, the players, uh, work with the coaches to help the coaches communicate and, um, in essence, optimize performance of the players. So in the role, I report before the players in spring training uh, with the manager, the rest of the staff, and I'm with the team all 162 games. I'm in the dugout during the games. Um, I've been in the role since 2021. As a travel quarter coordinator reminds me, uh, the Dodgers won nine straight divisions in the World Series before I came. Uh, we did not win the division the first year I was there, um, but, we, but we did tie the, uh, I think we tied this, the record for most wins by the Dodgers in year one, and then Year two, we bested it. We won 111 games. So uh, I just finished year three. I'm on my second contract with the Dodgers. What do you do in the offseason, Brent? What's that look like when they're no longer playing games? Uh, I am a dog walking and child taxi service. So I uh, <laughs> technically, I don't have many responsibilities with in the offseason. Um, but invariably, we have stuff going on, whether it's developing uh, resources for the team or um, like right now we're looking for a position and doing some other things. So, um, but for the most part, it's, it's during the season, uh, I'll go. And then in the off season, I do have some time off. Nice. Very nice. What's the baseball off season, like two and a half weeks long, like 18. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> we, um, it, you know, it, it's, it's really a tough situation because you're, you're with the team for seven, eight months and then the playoffs come. And like for us, the last two years, the playoffs ended in a four day period. So we played 162 games, had tremendous success. And then um, the playoffs did not go the way we wanted to. Um, and, but then you do get to be with your family. So it's kind of a mixed bag, but there's so much riding on the playoffs. Um, the good thing though, like in the last two years, the Phillies advanced. So obviously um, Tracy CC seeing them succeed this year, Zach Brandon, the Diamondbacks knocked us out and they went all the way to the world series. So, um, I mean, I'd rather us win, but still <laughs> at least that someone else has experienced success. And then, um, uh, year, the year two for me was actually the lockout. So I got an extended off season, um, 
But then this year we play in Korea against the Padres during spring training. So we report a week early. So literally it's going to be a very short off season. It's only about three and a half months. What a cool mm, experience though, to get to go internationally and do something like that since baseball is so huge in other parts of the world now, especially. Yeah, I'm sure it's going to be a tremendous experience uh, with a lot of fanfare and uh, should be fun. So looking forward to that. Nice. Brent, so in our podcast, we hope to better understand how the key figures in our field like you got to where they are today. Would you give us a bit of background on your pathway and where that kind of led you to today and really highlight any significant moments that may have formed your experiences in sports psychology? Yeah, so um, if you go all the way back to the beginning, I studied under John Silva at UNC Chapel Hill, uh, finished out my master's at Chapel Hill, went to the University of Illinois to study, on, study under Glenn Roberts, um, got my PhD at the University of Illinois. And back then, um, it, there weren't really full-time positions in sports psychology. So the typical model was if you wanted to practice, you finished up um, – you took a job as a professor and did some consulting on the side. I mean, realistically, the only full-time position I can think of back then was probably Dave Yokelson at Penn State. I could be wrong on that, but um, so there weren't really, and I had, I was in a unique situation. I'll share a story with you because I think it'll blend into some of the stuff we talked about later. Um, so I'm at the University of Illinois. I'm working with about 10 teams by the time I leave uh, my PhD and so some of the coaches were like, hey, you know, why don't you stay on and do this full time? And so mm -hmm. I was like, you know, that's a possibility. I'd be interested in that. So literally, I am living in a condo at the time. I go out to do my laundry and there's police tape and there's blood everywhere. And oh, man, what is going on? Well, come to find out, um, one of the student athletes had committed suicide right there. Oh my gosh. Um, and so because of that, the football coach at the time was like, Hey, if we're going to hire someone, we're going to hire someone clinical. Um, so it ends up being about the 11th hour in terms of looking for a position. I had the opportunity to go on an interview, come, come back and interview someplace. After I got back from my honeymoon, um, I decided, you know what, I can't do that. So I take a job at a small school just North of Kansas city. Um, and end up going, taking that position for five years. And um, was that an academic so, position, Brent? Yeah. So I, it was okay. at, uh, it was teaching at Missouri Western. Okay. Um, and, and interestingly enough, so I'll <laughs> talk about life happening. Um, I get married. We go on our honeymoon. We come back from our honeymoon on Thursday night. I de defend my dissertation on Friday morning. <laughs> And then drive to Kansas City and start my job on Monday morning. So, <laughs> um, so and, and then someone like five days later, someone calls me and offers me a full time position. Um, I, I won't say where it was, but it I was like, I can't do this academically to someone in the middle of a semester, five days into a semester. So um, looking back on it, that would have been a great opportunity that didn't happen. Mm. Um, but like I said, there weren't many positions out there. So it was unique to have that opportunity. Uh, I ended up staying at Missouri Western for five years. I was consulting. I was working with baseball players a lot. I was doing stuff with the U.S. Soccer Federation. Uh, after five years, I left Kansas City. We had our first child, and we decided to move back to Illinois, where we were from. 
So I took a job at Eastern Illinois University, another faculty position, and then started working with the University of Illinois teams again. Uh, so I did that from 2005 to 2012. Uh, 2012, I took a job as a director of championship performance at Columbia University. And so there I was in charge of mental training for the athletic department. And uh, I, as a director of championship performance, I oversaw our sports nutrition area, uh, leadership area, ended up hiring a second person to do the leadership and ended up doing some mental health stuff as well. Um, and then I stayed there until 2021 when I joined the Dodgers. Hmm. So it's quite a pathway. Wow. That's interesting to think of all the like what ifs that were in there as well. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, I think that's like, I'm a big believer in things happen for a reason. And I think regardless of where you are, or where you come from, you don't know what's coming next. So, but things always work out yes. for the most part. <laughs> How did you um, get interested in the field itself? Uh, great question. Uh, when I was at, when I was an undergrad, I was at Bradley University, which is, uh, um, I guess, a mid-major Division One university. And I actually played basketball for one year and baseball uh, for four. And I think through those experiences, um, I had the opportunity to continue with basketball. They wanted me to give up baseball. Uh, quite honestly, I, I just, I wasn't confident enough to make that move. I should have, looking back on it. Um, for basketball, you get treated a lot better. We'd go to Burger King and have $5 meal money. And we were going to like, uh, much nicer places. We went to Hawaii for basketball. So, I mean, a little better, uh, conditions. Um, and then my, my junior year in baseball, I, <laughs> my first outing of the year as a pitcher, I threw a no hitter. My next two outings, I give up like one hit in relief, four and two thirds, give up three hits, my next complete game. Um, and then I never made it through the third inning again. So I was like, man, um, and this, and talking about things happen for a reason. Uh, I'm at a small liberal arts school, Bradley University. And it just so happens that Kathy Butchko, who got her, or got her PhD at uh, Michigan State, is in the counseling center and decides mm -hmm. to offer a um, teach an adjunct sports psychology class. Mm -hmm. Take the class. She gives me the graduate handbook. I, I'm like, if I can help someone avoid the roller coaster I'm riding as an athlete, I would love to do that. Um, at the same time, my academic advisor had gone to a conference and said, hey, I heard about this sports psychology thing. You should try it out. You're a psychology major. Um, so literally, I go through the handbook. I'm like, UNC looks like the best program in the country as far as I'm concerned of what I want to do. Um, apply, get in, and then I end up going to UNC. So, But it was based out of my experience as an athlete and just wanting to help people avoid the roller coaster I rode. Um, I'll tell you another funny story. I mean, I'm 50, I'm going to be 52 in next month. Um, last week, a guy I went to middle school with sent me a video of our state championship in seventh grade baseball. <laughs> so, and I mean, I was a hothead and I, I needed a lot of help. I didn't get the most out of myself athletically. So I'm like, wow, I like that. You know, the, the video's all grainy and everything because video tapes back in, this was 85, I think. Um, so I watched my first at bat. I swing at the first pitch, foul tip into the catcher's mitt, and I slam my bat into the ground. And I was like, oh my God, I was really a nutball. I mean, I knew I was a nutball, but that's a whole other level. So 
but just a funny thing when you look back on it, and you're like, man, that that video, that that one at bat tells me so much information about where I've been. Uh, that's, so funny. that's where I got into sports psychology. <laughs> Do you feel like your playing background is why you drifted towards baseball or those were the opportunities that presented themselves along the way? Uh, you know, it's funny. I Like when I was at Illinois, I used, I worked with the, the basketball team um, and I work with NBA guys and I always thought basketball was hard to work with because um, it's just, it's a feel thing and it's a, it's a flow based sport and um, baseball. There's a lot of dead time. When I got to Columbia, I started to break sports down by I think category. So swimmers, rowers, distance runners are racers. So it's a lot of that is motivation. It's race planning. It's um, managing the physiology piece of it, turning your brain off uh, baseball, softball, golf, tennis, those are stop and sport, start sports that are skill-based that you've got to manage the time, golf, same thing. Um, so, I, I mean, I I always enjoyed working with baseball. It wasn't necessarily the sport piece of it, but I thought it just fit well with sports psychology and interventions. Um, but, like, having said that, I think when I was at Columbia, I probably met with more runners than anything. I mean, um, just the distance – uh, and, and the rowers too with the erg season and we actually rode on a river which added a whole other element with the current so um yeah. and a lot of fencers too fencers and stop and start sport uh, so but that was a cool thing at columbia too i got to see a lot of the different sports and yeah. sports i'd never been exposed to uh, yeah. so i learned about a lot of different sports i like that classification system I I, i've never really put it into <laughs> thought process but when you're saying that i'm like yep that definitely aligns with a lot of my experiences as well for sure that a lot. Yeah. It, and and then it, it it leads you to the crossover too. So you can think about, all right, what interventions can I adapt to the other sports? And, um, but I, I love Columbia. I had a great experience there for sure. Such a cool area too. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we also, in addition to understanding more about your background is we want to get a snapshot of the field itself. Um, and then prior to your presidential service, so like mid 20 aughts, I think is what we're calling that. Um, how would you describe the field of sport and exercise psychology and ask prior to you running for president? Yeah, great question. So I'll, I'll start off. Um, <laughs> Eric, when, when were you the student rep? I was with you. So I think I was with, yeah, uh, no. yeah, we overlapped. And so I think I was with John was rotating out. He was president when I was on it. So I think you were coming on. Okay. Cause the, the, the reason why I asked the question is, and I was thinking about this leading up to this, I think I've served on the board longer than anybody in ASPS history <laughs> because I went from the scientific program chair to the presidency and the scientific program chair was a three-year term plus a shadow year. So I think I started in 2010 as a shadow and didn't finish till 2017. Um, so I actually have tenure on the ASK board. Uh, I don't think it does anything for me, but I do have tenure on the board. Um, I've heard that there's a really nice luncheon for past presidents, right? That's the, that's the yeah, tenure there right there. Go. Nice there you lunch. go. There you go. Uh, that might be a deterrent more than it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so if I, to me, I think the field and 
I asked, there were two relevant transitions leading into um, my presidency. One, I think from, a, from an ass perspective, it was really the transition from the first generation of founders slash leaders to the second generation. So Jack Watson, John Metzler, and Rob Schinke preceded me. That was the start of the second generation. Um, I think there were some probably growing pains in terms of what we were trying to do because I think as a field, we were transitioning from an academic discipline to a potential career field. We weren't there yet, but we were on our way to that point. And I think if you look at the presidency, for example, over 90% of the presidents that preceded me had academic affiliations and academic positions. Um, and so I think with that transition, it was kind of, all right, how do we move from the academic discipline piece to really thinking about ourselves as practitioners in with potential for full-time um, employment? Uh, I think so that transition was a big part of it. And for me, and this gets into my motivation for running for president. Um, the ASP had always been member facing. So if you look at how we um, divvied up our resources, what we were, what we did for the first two and a half decades of its existence, AFS was um, that member facing organization. You really did not interact with ASP outside of being on a committee outside of the conference. I mean, if you were, the conference was a culminating event. And from a board perspective, that was a lot of our focus. And um, I mean, I, I give tremendous credit to Kent and his staff. Uh, when they came on board, they really helped us evolve as an organization from just that member facing piece to making that next step of how do we become more than just simply a conference. So um that was definitely kind of the landscape that existed. Uh, I think relevant, and, and, I'll, and I'll personally, I got to Columbia in 2012. Like I said, they're just, I mean, IMG had full-time employees. Um, I was one of the, maybe probably the third or fourth full-time position in college athletics. Uh, I got one, so the year after I get to Columbia, um, the NCAA hires Brian Hainline to be the chief medical officer. And then um, I actually met with Brian in 2014 at Columbia uh, to talk about sports psychology, the field. Um, he was there with in our athletic department for other things. Um, Brian is a neurologist by trade. And Brian came out on multiple occasions saying the number one health and safety issue facing student athletes is mental health. And so that was kind of the first domino of a new boom of all of the mental health practitioners being hired in college athletics over the next decade. Then you see the snowball occurs, um, the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, finally then all mandate mental health practitioners. And even though those are mental health positions, invariably, if you're doing mental health work, in, especially in college, you're also doing performance work. Um, I think, though, for me and meeting with Brian, and so I meet with Brian in 2014, 
I then set up a um, a meeting with the NCAA Sports Science Office with the board in the spring of 2015 when we go to Indianapolis. And then we had a joint venture at ASP where we had people presenting to the staff um, during the conference. But the thing that really stood out about that meeting um, is that realistically, Brian had no idea what a performance enhancement specialist did. Um, and I think it was a failure on our part, quite honestly. And this is what I go back to. We were always member facing. We were never thinking about how do we go out and grow the field externally to those hiring bodies, those entities. Um, Brian was strongly influenced by a couple psychologists who kind of presented this duality that you're either a psychologist and you have the entire well-being of the person in mind and you can treat all their mental health issues, or you're just a mental skills coach and you're only interested in the performance and basically giving them some psychoeducation tools. Um, and so it was a good meeting we had as a board because it gave him a different perspective of what we actually do. He didn't know that. Um, so for me, that was a, an important meeting because that was my motivation for running for presidency was like, when I got to Columbia, I, I quickly realized this is a great job, but if we hire a new AD or we go in a different direction, I don't have another job to go to. They don't exist. Right. And sure enough, when I interviewed at Columbia, I asked the AD at the time, I'm like, how long are you going to be here? Because I'm not going to move my family across the country to New York City. And she's like, no problem. I, I'm going to be here. Um, don't you worry. I'm, I'm here for the long haul. And I think it was year three at the beginning of the year, she walked into our opening meeting and she's like, this is my last year. I'm done. And I was like, oh boy, <laughs> you got to be kidding. It may have been year two. I think it was year three. Um, but luckily I survived that. But because of that, I also knew, hey, we need to we need to be better about growing the field and creating these opportunities. Um, we've and, and going back to this notion of where is the field at at the time, like we had always lagged behind athletic training and strength conditioning. Um, one reason for that you could argue is the national certification. So starting with Jack, Jack Watson's tenure, that's where the CMPC starts to develop. Um, so that was one piece of the puzzle, but the reality is though, and, and I see it in, baseball my gosh the the athletic training has so much power they're they're collectively bargained their role is um they just have they are deeply embedded whereas you can compare it with sports psychology um this year at the winter meeting baseball meetings this is the first year i think that the role of mental performance coach is identify or is acknowledged by major league baseball and they're actually supplying a room for the winter meeting so it just shows how far we are behind the other fields but the reason why i just long-witted in telling you that is that that was my passion that was my interest was all right how do we establish relationships inform the public inform consumers inform hiring bodies about what what it is we do and then grow the field to do that um and I mean, like I said, the growing pains, I think it's from a conference perspective or from a, an organizational perspective for ASP, it's a completely different way of doing things. You're investing your resources in different areas. You're, you're thinking about how, what's important in different ways. Um, so 
it, it was a, a, at times, I think a bit of a struggle, um, largely because of the academic roots of ASP. We didn't really think of kind of entrepreneurs, if you will, or how do we go out and grow the field from an employment standpoint. That's interesting, Brian. You you mentioned a couple of times kind of your this was your motivation. You wanted to move in. You wanted to do that. I wonder if you could talk about the the motivation to start as the scientific program chair. Like what what pushed you to start in that area? It sounds like you were very busy. You had a young family. Like what what pushed you to start in Aspen that way too? Um, you know that's a great question. Uh, you know, my advice for students uh, i'll tell you a little bit later on something you might get for students but like grow a network of people um and, and rely on that network oddly enough michelle magyar was a scientific program chair michelle and i had met she was at michigan state when i was at illinois we did a regional conference together so we kind of worked together at that we met at that for the first time i obviously made a bad impression or angered her in some way because she wrote me into doing the scientific <laughs> program chair thing um but like, I think a lot of people were like, um, it, it's a tough position because you're planning the conference. It's intensive. It's probably probably the most labor intensive position on the board. Sure. Um, I, the reason why I wanted to do it was um, I, I was always a science practitioner, science informs practice. I figured what better way to do that than to sit there and see what everyone's doing. So personally, it was a huge advantage. I was also interested and in, invested in ASP, um, obviously coming up under John Silva. John was a founding president. Um, ASP had a, you know, I, I valued ASP tremendously. So to have the opportunity to give back and serve the organization and help any way I could was uh, of interest to me. And um, so that was kind of my motivation. It was personal, but it was also uh, really born out of um, like, I'll never forget when I got to UNC for my master's degree, like two weeks in, John's like, all right, you got to get ready. You got to pay for the conference. I'm like, what are you talking about? And the free conference is in Lake Tahoe. I'm like, could we pick a farther location or more expensive location as a graduate student? Uh, I think I finished paying off those loans about four days ago. Um, <laughs> but, but like, obviously under John, you're, you know, ASP is, um, was critically important to John. And so that, that was something I felt too. And so that was um, what interested me in um, serving on the board and being part well, of that. And not only John, but Glenn was also a president later on as well. So yeah, so a, and that lineage was, says that for sure. Yeah. So, and I actually served on the board with Glenn. So that was nice too. Um, yeah. So um, I got to, to interact with both of them during my, my tenure, which was nice mm -hmm. for sure. You know how like some universities get labeled as like like the cradle of coaching where like coaches go there and like learn and then like move on and become these like Hall of Fame coaches. I feel like Illinois is that for the ask presidents from people. You know what's funny? You want to hear something crazy about Illinois? So I had when I was a grad student, I had like two offices that I kind of used or I, I snuck into one. I don't know, but in one of the offices. Um, some of Coleman Griffith's reaction time machines were still in there. No. Um, and, and like, they're just sitting there and I'm like, man, these, these are like, to us, these are like critically valued. I'm sure they just got, they were thrown away at some point, but I was like, <laughs> holy cow. 
I should have kept that and put it in my own office, but I don't know if I could have lifted it. That thing was like a, <laughs> it's a team lift for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but that was crazy. Cause I, I was like, Glenn, what is this? And he's like, Oh, that's one of Coleman's old uh, reaction time machines. I was like, Oh my goodness, this is unbelievable. Um, but it, it, being in Illinois was also from a sport and exercise standpoint, fascinating. Um, because I was actually the last sport-based PhD at Illinois. Uh, Glenn retired during my PhD. And um, then Eddie McCauley, who was a self-efficacy researcher, Eddie was just, you know, grant-wise taking over. And so we had an old abandoned floor that was an old gymnasium that eventually they redid and became all of Eddie's um, offices and labs and everything so he had a whole floor dedicated to him uh but you really got to see like as i was at illinois it became the psychology of activity and aging uh so mm -hmm. i saw it firsthand um kind of those sports psychology roots just died on the vine while i was literally there um mm -hmm. and the exercise and the the power of grant money kind of took over and transformed um illinois for sure interesting what were you hoping to accomplish as your time as president so in those like three years what were your main goals i think the main goal was to help us become that consumer facing organization and really to establish connections with professional sport with college sport um, so that we could create opportunities for the next generation job-wise. Um, I, and I will say too, and this is a, I think, uh, was a hugely beneficial transition. And I don't know if Kent actually started the strategic planning, but when I was a president, there was a strategic plan in place. So you really were, um, the pro the ask the executive board was streamlined with doing what the strategic plan had. I think prior to that, and one of the difficulties of ask was you had that presidential term was um, you went through those three years, and from year to year, you could veer greatly bend it depending on the interest of a person. So when you got the strategic plan, it wasn't hey, here's my agenda. I'm going to, you, you know, push my agenda through. It was more law. It was part of a long-term vision. I think to me, and this goes back to where we were as an organization, as a field, for us to grow, it was a three-pronged process. It's one, establishing that national certification, which started with Jack. Two, um, let's connect with hiring entities, hiring bodies, outside agencies, consumers, and then three, really develop and enhance the graduate training models to train people to be practitioners and do a better job of that. So I think it, during my tenure on the board and presidency, those were the three big prongs that we were focused on. Uh, Angus and I were focused on the, the job and Angus was better positioned. Like anytime someone had a position, they were calling Angus um, to get Angus to um, asking his opinion on that. Um, I would get random calls here and there, um, but not like Angus because of his position with IMG and then moving on to the Blue Jays at the time. Um, but that was really the goal is the consumer facing piece to really 
establish some sort of roots with hiring entities to grow the job market at the time. Great. That's a lot to do in one plus two years. Yeah, and that, that's the other piece of it is, and that's why the strategic plan was nice too, because I think in the way, and, and I don't know there's a better way to do that. We talked a lot about this, but you're the president one year, you have one, you have one if you have an agenda, you got to finish it that year because you're planning the conference the following year, yeah. which I, I would, I tried to advocate and push for us no longer doing that. It didn't, once again, it was, it was deeply rooted within the organization. People didn't want to change it, but to me, it didn't make a lot of sense because anything you wanted to get done or work on, you had literally that one year period to do it. And then you were off planning a conference. Um, so but that was that was just how things operated and um, changing the model, I think, would have been difficult to do. Um, I mean, there are all kinds of ideas you could have about those things, but I don't know there's an ideal way to do it for sure. Hmm. Well, Brent, I want to take a, a kind of a veer off of our, our chosen path right now, and I want to jump into a story break. So in this, we would love for you to tell us a fun story from your time in the field. Anything goes, whatever you'd like to share that brings a smile to your face about your time. And there are definitely bonus points if you include other ASK members in your story or stories. Um. Let me first ask, what did Jack Watson share? Because most of my stories involve Jack Watson. <laughs> so, it's so funny that you mentioned that because when we talked to Jack beforehand, he was like, I need to make sure I like censor myself. Um, <laughs> so he told a very tame story, but we also keep joking because as soon as we like, this is a spoiler, I guess, for everyone who's listening, is as soon as we stop recording, like the real stories come out. So we've decided that we need like an ASP after dark, like <laughs> podcast. Um, but people have, we have run the gamut for sure. Did Jack tell you about Vegas? No. I don't think okay, so. So what, this, now this is a funny board story. Yeah. Um, so, so what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but right. since what happens in ass stays in ass, this is still ass, so we're good. We're all friends here. So so we, we're, we're at the Rio in Vegas, so we go there for the spring board meetings before and, and do the planning and everything. So if, you, if you're at Rio, if you remember Rio, um, there was like that long jaunt, that long hallway, like a quarter mile hallway that takes you from the hotel space to the conference space. So we're there for the spring board meetings and we walk into the hallway and like literally every three feet for a quarter mile, there are sex toy banners. And so immediately, because we're there for the board meeting, we're like, oh my God, what is here with us during the conference? Because typically we take up all the conference space, but the Rio was so large, they can host two events at the same time. And so we're just in a sweating panic. We're like, oh my God, is there like a porn convention during the conference? This is <laughs> this is the worst thing that could possibly happen. So, so we're like, all right, check, 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 see what it is. So, so like literally every three feet, there is a five to six foot banner of sex toys for a quarter <laughs> mile. So Brendan Carr is a student rep. Brendan goes and gathers like 75 sex toy pamphlets and puts them in Jack Watson's bag and doesn't tell him. <laughs> so when Jack gets home and opens his bag, 
there, there's just nothing but sex toy uh, paraphernalia, not actual paraphernalia, but <laughs> brochures for it. So, but like, but like literally we are just freaking out because we're like, oh my gosh, we didn't even think about, because, because normally, like, like I said, we take up all the conference space, right. but this was, <laughs> but we're at that point where we're also growing out of so many hotels, you had to yep. go bigger and it just so happened the real could entertain someone else. But what ends up happening is Comic-Con is at Rio during the conference and I'll never right, forget right. walking down the hall and there's a, a woman dressed in I don't even know what the character is it's like a eight foot bird costume of some sort she's got wings that are like seven feet wide and like you just watch everyone just stop start taking pictures with their phones and everything I'll never forget that so then fast forward to the conference and um what is it uh they have a restaurant there and I, it must've been the conference because I think we eat most of our meals as a board together. So we go to, um, Brendan Carr is Jack, myself and Brendan. Um, Brendan's like, Hey, hash house, a go, go the restaurant in the Rio it's on man versus food. And they have this thing. And I didn't know what man versus food was. And I was like, okay, do you guys know what man versus food? Mm -hmm. is? Yeah. Yeah. So, so he's like, they have this man versus food thing. I want to go do it for breakfast. And I'm like, okay, let's go do that. So we go in and um, Hash House to Go Go is known for their oversized portions. And Brendan orders this chicken biscuit something or other that's piled up like, it's like, I still have a picture of it. And I think it's it's got, it's like, I mean, it's like 2,700 calories or at the, on the low end or something. So he's all excited, man versus food. And then he, and Jack gets a pancake that's the size of the plate. I don't even remember what I had, to be honest. But like Brendan eats like a quarter of it. He's pecking at it like a bird. And so I'm like, bro, I, and I'm just wearing him out, just talking smack over and over <laughs> again. And like, he, he literally finishes like a fourth of it, a fifth of it or something. So I'm like, dude, that was so pathetic. So because of conference, you don't have much time. We go back there for lunch. So I order a tenderloin sandwich and the sandwich comes out and it, it's like this big. I mean, it's like, oh my goodness. And so it's Brendan, Jack and I again, I think. And so I'm like, I start eating this sandwich. I get about a quarter of the way through it and I start getting the meat sweats. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to be sick. No, it's horrible. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm like, I have to eat this whole thing because I talked so much smack to right. Brendan about what he did breakfast that I'm, I, I'm like, if I have to go throw up in the middle of it, I'm going to pretend I'm just going to the bathroom, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> so like literally I finished that whole sandwich, never been felt worse in my life. Like literally oh. me sweats. I probably had to take two hours off from the conference because of that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I was, I, I'll know, I literally still have the picture of his meal um because he couldn't eat the whole and i still give him a hard time i'll send him the picture like once a year just to remind him <laughs> that he couldn't that he lost man versus food one he didn't win so you um, know the conference is going back to vegas soon brent you you yeah. have another chance if you want uh, to attack that breakfast meal i just looked it looks like cash house of go go is still there um i, I that's a, the struggle for me now obviously is the goal is we're always still playing when ash right. happens so it's yeah. it's tough but um and then it's such a disappointment when you lose. Like I think we might have been lost right before or during the conference or something. But 
Yeah, it's one of those you don't want to plan on going, and that's almost like admitting yeah. that you don't expect to be going late into the season, too. Yeah. So yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Cool. I think it's easier for people like Tracy is at the Phillies, but <laughs> 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 hi Tracy. <laughs> um, man, that's so funny. A lot of stories have been around food actually. Mm-hmm. Like oh, really? where people are eating and None about what people have not finished, but that's a good one. Yeah, well, it's, I'm, like I said, like most of my stories involve Jack, but either we can't remember them or <laughs> they're probably not made for the air. So that's a, <laughs> that's a good thing. Maybe you can't remember them because they aren't made for the air, too. Right. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah. I wonder if Joe found the pamphlets or if, did Watson find them before you went home? Um, no, I don't think so. I, I want to say... He opened his bag at home and was like, what is this? <laughs> but like, that's a typical Brendan car, though. Oh, like, sure. I, that's just total Brendan, though. <laughs> uh, oh. That was great, though. <laughs> so diving back into <laughs> some of this uh, field chat, in what ways do you feel like the field has evolved? And then what are your thoughts, both positive, negative, or neutral, about that evolution? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously the biggest evolution has been um, the move toward the mental health piece. Um, and like, I, I think the the toughest part about that is the turf wars that exist. Um, doesn't matter where you, what organization you talk about. And even in baseball, we see it. Um, MLB recent last year came out and mandated the mental health piece. And um, I think we've done a really poor job of kind of growing the field as a holistic notion versus um, the turf battle of, I want my piece of the pie. And so um, it's been a tough transition. It's, it's weird to me too, because, and I haven't seen the numbers since I was on the board, but I know the, like when I started, the mental health piece didn't exist. I think 99% of programs were sport-based. They were usually in a kinesiology exercise science department. Smith & Small had a clinical-based program at Washington. I don't know if there was another one in the ball sport. But I think so many people are dual-trained right now that I'm still a little confused by the, the turf wars that exist, but they're still there. Um, and I think, we've, like I said, we've done a poor job of getting out of our own way um, and growing the field. That's where I think for sure athletic training was way better than us in leveraging themselves. And what's interesting about that too, is like um, athletic training has their own turf war. They, they deal with physical therapists. So, um, and, and like going back to the story I told earlier about Hainline, it, even if you look at it um, in the count of hours for athletes, if you look at a lot of the legislators that came out, we were viewed this, the sport psychology, the mental performance piece was viewed identically to strength and conditioning. So in terms of countable hours, you use the term strength and conditioning staff interchangeably with mental performance. So we didn't have our own um, separate, and that's that's problematic, especially when you're dealing with well the well-being of an individual. It's not the same as strength and conditioning. It shouldn't be a countable hour. Um, but when I was at Columbia, that was something we saw on a regular basis. So I think that's probably been the biggest evolution and like I said, Hainline was the first Damodo to fall. I would argue that um, 
DeMar DeRozan coming out talking about his depression, Kevin Love talking about his panic attack, that kind of springboarded things. And then um, we've all seen what happened since then from the mental health perspective. But um, to me, that's been the biggest overall evolution that's taken place. Brent, you were at a, a really interesting time, especially as signed program chair and then going into presidency. Where do you feel like the Aspen and the field are going from here? You had a pretty unique view in those time frames. I know it's been a few years since you were serving in those roles, but where do you see us in the future, Aspen and the field? That's a great question. Um, you know, I like. I think the mental health piece has become such a bigger part of it. Um, I think we need to continue with that notion of how do we train people to be practitioners? Um, and I'll, I'll tell you firsthand, like I've had three careers. Um, the first career was professor slash consultant. And when you're a consultant, your client is your client and that is your primary focus. So early on in my career, like when I work with an athlete, my philosophy was, I don't care what the coach does. I've got to help you deal with whatever the coach does. Um, my second career was as an embedded practitioner. And with that, as an embedded practitioner, your client sometimes gets clouded because the, the, the overall good of the organization is a priority. So the thing I found being at Columbia, for instance, was when we got rid of coaches that weren't good or effective, it benefited everybody. And so that was a kind of thinking of a, an organization from an organizational perspective changes things dramatically. My third career was at Dodgers. I feel like there's no overlap before what I did before the Dodgers and being with the Dodgers. Like it's a hmm. being in professional sports entirely different, especially um, I would even argue the minor leagues are entirely different than the major leagues. And the being an embedded practitioner with a with one team on a daily basis and literally traveling with and being with that team is a totally different way of doing it. that. I think now that all of those entities exist, and if you go back, that first career I had was all anybody really had for the most part. So really in terms of training people, preparing people, that's all you're training for because you don't understand what you don't. You don't know what you don't know if you haven't been in it. I think now that we have so many people who have been in it, the next evolution for us needs to be, okay, how do we prepare people to do all these different roles? Hmm. How do we, and I'll never forget, I took the ASP ethics course uh, with Ed Etzel and I kind of told him the hats I wore at Columbia. When I got to Columbia, I was an associate athletic director. And so when people, when coaches would get fired, I would be in the room. And like when those decisions are made, I would ask, be asked for my input. I said, Ed, how do I handle this? And he goes, nobody wears those hats, Brent. I don't know how you do that. <laughs> and so <laughs> it was like, oh, great. <laughs> um, and, but I think now that we have all those things, we have to consider that in terms of how do we prepare people for practice to do these different roles? Because they're, they're, the ethical considerations are different. The responsibilities are different. The day-to-day -day activities are different. I think in terms of, what we research too, in terms of really understanding um, what exists in a in one context versus another context, 
um, there are opportunities to research and understand that. And that's something we need to, to really look at moving forward is how do we best serve all of those different needs? Because um, it is completely different than 10, 15 years ago where we are now as a field uh, and the opportunities that exist for people as well. Well said. You've touched on this a little bit, but uh, what advice do you have for students and new professionals, either entering the field or just starting out? Um, I would start with this. Figure yourself out. Work through your own issues. <laughs> um, the, the reality is the more success you have in the field, the greater you're going to be challenged. And if you aren't self-aware and you don't have your own issues figured out, it's going to be your downfall. You won't survive. Um, you have to be secure to do the role at the highest level. Um, and so really working on yourself, I would say that was probably in, in, I'm thankful to John Silva for that. When I got to UNC, I probably learned more about myself in that two year period than I had maybe the rest of my life up to that point. Um, but, and I would also say uh, if I would have had this opportunity with the Dodgers fresh out of grad school, it probably wouldn't have been a totally different experience for me. I don't know that I would have had the same uh, experience just because being more secure, understanding who I was, it's, it's critical at the highest level. Um, so that's one piece of it. Figure yourself out. Um, I think the second piece, and I'll reiterate what I said during my presidential address, and I got a lot of slack for this, but I still truly believe this. Um, I think the future people need to be trained in mental health. Uh, the reality is you may never use mental health, but you will lose opportunities that you wouldn't otherwise lose if you don't have that background in mental health. It'll make you a more informed practitioner. It'll make you better at the referral process. And like I said, it'll open doors that otherwise wouldn't be open. Uh, I'm a firm believer in if the third generation isn't fully trained, we've failed that third generation. Um, and and I'll, I'll tell you firsthand, working in baseball demonstrates this. Um, it's been common practice to hire former players who have no training in sports psychology at all and to have them do mental skills. The reason why they can do that is that it doesn't take a lot to do mental skills. It doesn't take much of a background. Um, where the failure exists is, for instance, when you when the routine doesn't work and someone's breathing doesn't work because they're emotionally compromised and you don't have a backup plan, you failed that person and you failed the field. Um, it, the reality is you have to be able to work at a depth. And a lot of people, if, you just, if your background is just solely mental skills, you don't have that depth to do that. And that hurts the field. That hurts all of us. Um, and for me, I just don't want to see people a generation from now, two generations from now dealing with that same issue. Um, and so, like I said, even though you may never deal with mental health issues, you should be trained in it. Um, and, and it makes you more marketable. I always tell people, young people, when they come to me and want to know what they should do, that's the advice I always give them. I know some people are angry with that, but I, to me, if you're angry with that advice, justify why, not for you, but why a student, a generation from now, shouldn't have that background. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of the way I approach it. Um, I've got a lot of advice, so I'll give you a few more. Um, I think the third one is develop a network of peers and learn from one another. Uh, personally, I wouldn't be with the Dodgers if it wasn't for my 
network of peers, my group of peers, and I would have been much, much less likely to receive a second contract if I hadn't been for those people. Um, I have a close, close group um, that we regularly get together and learn from one another. Um, I relied heavily on their experiences in professional sports because I hadn't been in, embedded in professional sport. Um, and like they helped me, I, I'm forever indebted to them because I, I felt like I had a pretty good grasp of what to expect. And had it not been for working and having Zooms with them on a regular basis, I wouldn't have been ready for that. So I think your network is invaluable both in terms of holding you accountable, creating opportunities for you, um, but then learning from one another. And then the, uh, I think the final piece for me is just become a lifelong learner. Um, like I said, when I got to the Dodgers, I, like, I really learned how little I knew. <laughs> it was just a totally different way of doing things. Um, I think when I, I thought I'd gotten to a pretty good place at Columbia. I thought I had a lot figured out and, you know, I consider myself a baseball person, but then when I got to the highest level and did the highest level, I was like, I'm swimming in waters that I haven't swam in before. And so, um, and I'm also someone that went back, got my master's in my mid forties, um, in mental health counseling. So I think that experience helped me become a better practitioner. Um, you're never too old to do that, but also I think it also, it helps you understand that, um, you are who you are right now. It's not who you're going to be. And you always want to continue to be um, the best version of yourself. Being a lifelong learner helps you do that. So um, I'm definitely a firm believer in continuing to grow and um, understanding your own weaknesses and trying to improve upon those. So. Yeah, that's great. great advice. Wow. Yeah, I love that line about like you are who you are right now. It's almost like the idea of like people say like, I can't do it. Right. But yet, like adding in like that kind of caveat. I like that a lot. Yeah. Brent, you've had a, a pretty, I, lo I love that you kind of characterize it as almost like three different careers and who knows what, what the next steps or stages will be. But what do you hope your impact on the field will be? Um, to be honest, I think at the most basic level, um, I hope I just do quality work because we're at a, we're at that juncture where it could be a tipping point. I mean, we're, and we're seeing this in baseball, like we don't have it all. I mean, we're not stable like athletic training and strength and conditioning is. So in some ways we're still kind of tertiary We're we're not a necessary entity. So I think the more people that do quality work, the more it benefits the field. And I go back to, that's why you got to figure out your issues. Like everyone's failure is everyone's failure. Like if you fail, we all fail because it, it gives the field a bad name. We're not that secure in our position. So I think personally, my goal is to be a, a true professional in what I do and to do it the best of my ability. The more people that get multiple contracts in high level positions, that benefits all of us. Um, I still have goals down the road for the field, ways to help out future students. Um, right now, my bandwidth is obviously thin, um, but I still have some things down the road that are yet to come that I hope that have an impact on future students. Um, you know, leveraging some of the context I have in baseball now and creating opportunities. 
um, that's a that's a goal for the future, but it's just not here yet. So sure. um, I think that's the that's where I'm at right now. Yeah, great. Um, we're so grateful for all the things that you've shared with us so far. This has been an incredible. Um, we want to give you the opportunity just if there's anything that you want to add or anything that you feel like we haven't asked you about um, that you would like to share. Um, the field is yours. Um, I think probably to just the main thing is, and I, I will tell you firsthand, um, once again, I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for my colleagues, but also if it wasn't for us. Um, I think for me being on the executive board, going through being president of the organization, um, I learned so much about leadership and it created opportunities for me I wouldn't have otherwise had. I don't think if I was in those roles with ASP, I definitely wouldn't have ended up with doing the work that I'm doing. Um, so I think if anyone's listening to this, um, get involved. Uh, I think the more involved you are, the better it is for you as a professional, but it's also better for you as a person. Um, I do remember like going all the way back to, you know, I, I go, my ASP roots are date back to the mid nineties. Um, but even like early 2000s, mid 2000s, sometimes when I would go to the conference, I would have two or three people I'd hang out with. Um, being on the board, then I knew, you know, there wasn't a person I didn't know or some people didn't like me, but hey, at least they knew who I was. But um, <laughs> but it, it does. It connects you to people that you otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity to do. So uh, get involved um, and play a role, whatever that role may be. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much um, for sharing your time with us and with the field. I know the field is in a better place because people like you are in it. Um, so we're just incredibly grateful and indebted to you for taking some time on this afternoon to talk to us. Thank you. Yeah, Happy to do it. Thank you so much, Brent. As uh, you've heard today, we've asked, Dr. Brent Walker has answered, and we'll see you all next time.